you see this massive hole right here? I've heard I was preaching. We've got Petersons, McMorrises. See, that's the way we need to do it, is the whole church is going throughout the summer. Danny's paying. And then we'll move around from there. Okay. I was supposed to finish off Exodus this week, but Matt and I started to look at it, and there's just there's too much in these chapters here. Plus, this has been Jeremy's baby. He needs to finish it off. So hopefully he's coming up with a good one for when he gets back. Um, let's just start out Exodus 34, 10 through 35. Now, we've got, this is right after Moses has spoke with God. God is renewing his covenant. This is when Moses says, show me your glory. And God passes by Moses, proclaims his name to him. And this is what God says next. And he said, behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited and eat of this sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you, come out, you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, all the firstborn cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkeys, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you'll break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest. And the feast of ingathering at year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the, before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. One shall covet your, no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer blood of my sacrifice with anything unleavened, with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a sinner handling your word this morning. I pray that your spirit would do the work. I pray that the deadly and effective work of the word of God would be done, that you would guide the preaching, that you would open our hearts and minds. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So obviously this morning we're going to preach about boiling a young goat in mother's milk. The Bible says don't do it. If some of you need to go home and turn off your crock pots, I understand. I'll give you some time. So what we've got here is we've got God renewing this covenant. They messed up. They broke it. And here's God making them the new deal. This is the big turnaround. Another chance for his people to do what he told them. And the question comes up is, why does God give them another chance? Well, actually, Matt preached on that last week. God gives them another chance because he is proving his credentials. He's proving his nature. He's doing what he said he would do back in verse 6, six and 7. Whenever, whenever Moses said, show me your glory, show me who you are, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God, in renewing this covenant, even though they didn't do what they said they were going to do, God is remaining who he said he was going to be. He's fulfilling his credentials by redoing this, by making them this new deal, by holding his steadfast love. He says he's going to do marvels and awesome things. Let's not miss the concept of existence here. God is going to do things for and through these stiff-necked people to prove his character and his reality. God has set out to glorify himself, and it will be amazing, is what he's saying here. And these people and the people around are going to see it for themselves. That's his goal here. Now, what we've got next is a reiteration of God's laws. He goes through some of the same things that we've gone through before. I'm just going to hit them quickly the first one you see in verses 12 through 17 is fidelity to god he says be careful making deals getting involved with the people who don't believe like you do they'll drag you away from god now this isn't god making the slippery slope logical fallacy of you know you you downsize a vehicle to save fuel pretty soon you'll end up in a prius with a man bun you know we'd like to make those those slippery slope Th this isn't god saying now look if you do this then you're 
inevitably going to end up, you're probably going to do this. This is God telling, not assuming. This is God saying, look, if you go this direction, this is what is going to happen. This is what you will do. The type of people that you're most comfortable with will tell you what is most important to you. This little passage here shows you whether or not your Christianity is just a fixture or reality. What it tells us is that there's nothing passive about being a child of God. The reality is that being influenced, being under the influence of different worldviews changes you. This passage, it doesn't argue talking points for mixed company. It doesn't say you can wave at them, but you can't shake their hand. It, it's not going in to nitpick. Here's what it's saying. If you are not the careful one, you will be pulled away from the truth. It's not laying out a whole bunch of rules, saying, you know, the specific things you can do with them. You can, you can associate with the people on certain levels. To us, it's saying, you're the careful one. You are the one that stands by God. You do not be drug away from God. Our role as Christians is not to drive non-Christians out of the land. But we are not to become more like them. God's using his people to display his character. That's what he's doing. His name. He says the name of the Lord is jealous. God is a jealous God. He has created his people, and he uses his people today to display his name. It's a big deal to him. He demands that his people carry this privilege, this responsibility rightly, and that we display the nature of God rightly. It's what we're seeing here. It's interesting where he goes next. He doesn't, at this point, he doesn't talk about trading of goods with these other people. He doesn't talk about interstate commerce, clothing differences, farming practices. He goes to something very personal. He goes to marriage. It's what he goes into next. Now, this passage has been used where he talks about marrying the, into the inhabitants of the land. It's been used to preach against interracial marriage. And that's not using this passage rightly. People are people, and there are saved people, and there are unsaved people. But the obvious and the blunt reality of this passage is ignored a lot of times in a lot of Christian households. Don't marry a non-believer. In the renewal conversation, after the golden calf incident, one of the headline topics that we come to, one of the issues, the warnings, is that God says, not if, but when, you'll marry people who don't believe in me, and it will wreck your world. 
our culture puts a really, really low value on what a prospective spouse or any relationship for that matter believes about God. There's only two explanations to this, really. The believer in the situation is not listening to godly advice or neither person, for sure the believer in the relationship, but neither of them sees God as a relevant enough reality to even consider. In other words, not saved. God is to be a relevant reality and should influence all of these aspects, even these most in intimate aspects of your life, of your decision making. I, I cannot fathom how a marriage can even work if you don't have this mutual, not just mutual faith, not just a mutual, yeah, we both kind of believe in God, but repentance in common this repentant faith in God in common. Because that changes everything. That doesn't mean he believes in God, she sort of does, he's staunch religious, or she is, and he's just kind of, yeah, I think there's a power out there. And it's not just, well, yeah, we both grew up Baptist, or we both grew up whatever. Repentance. Both people having come to the realization that I'm the sinner, and without that, I, it's, I just I have a hard time understanding how marriage could even work without knowing the fact that I know I'm a sinner, you know you're a sinner, we've both come to God. That weakness is the building block, is the foundation of God-centered marriage. And then what it, what it does to the following generations, we see that, where... Both parents are kind of iffy on what they believe about God. And then the kids get bound up in that. And what you end up is, well, I'll just let them decide for themselves. They're kids. We see it all the time where God is so far down the list of priorities for mommy and daddy that generations then stagger off into eternity without a thought from God. It's sobering. And it's, it's harsh. But it's important enough that God mentioned it to us. And then he goes on into keeping his commands. Now what's interesting here in this new deal, in this new covenant, or in this renewal, after that golden calf fiasco, he doesn't adjust his commands. He doesn't drop the bar to an achievable level. Says, y'all couldn't do that. I'm going to go ahead and we're going to change the playing field for you. He doesn't change his standards. His standards and he remains unchanged. So then all that's happened is that humans are shown to be sinful even under the amazing blessings of God. God then proves to be who he says he is. He lays out the same terms. You know, it's funny how God knowing this about them, knowing they broke the same set of commandments, I'm starting over with the same set of commandments, knowing this about them, he says, he still says, 
I'm going to do something amazing here. It's not about them or us. It's about his glory. That's what he's going for. That's the big picture, the big goal of existence. Then he, see, he says, he talks about giving, giving back to him. And he goes on about it for a while. And this is, Jeremy went through this. I'm going to hit the highlights again as usual. Because Jeremy went through this in depth earlier. As God draws his people to perceive the reality of him, that's what we're doing here, because I'm going to do something amazing. You watch. This is what's going on. So as God is drawing his, his people to perceive this reality of him, he always commands giving in the process. Giving to him, his ministry, and to others. I say this to that I say that he does this to show his reality because it seems like on any other terms it'd be detrimental to us. Give the first, give the best, the stuff that you needed to make the first payment on the risk of it all. That's what you give to him. And then he says, None of you shall appear before me empty handed. That statement works two ways. And I've found people that say that it, it works one way or the other. It works either as a command, none of you shall appear before me empty-handed, or a promise, none of you shall appear before me empty-handed. We're giving him back part of what he gave us in the first place. Giving to him what rightly belongs to him. The point is, is that built into these commands of sacrificial giving is the implication that God will provide what he commands. Remember, the focus isn't about you. I'm going to give you a land, but you've got to eke out a living on this land. No. God has set out not to make people survive, but to make people glorify him. If he, if he tells them to give their best, then he will provide. If he tells them to rest once a week, even during the two busiest seasons, it means that he's going to take care of the details. Your focus is to be on him. And even if that means you suffer a little bit of loss in there, that's irrelevant. Well, I, I, I didn't go work 14 hours a week last Sunday, and, man, it caused me problems. Well, who are you honoring? Who takes care of you anyway? If he tells you that three times a year all the men are going to go leave and go to a God-commanded spiritual retreat, which was just enormously dangerous with all of their unbelieving neighbors around, that means that he's going to protect your property. If he says don't marry someone who doesn't believe my word and follow my commands, that means he will provide the better relationship he intends for you. Giving is... is really good for us the healthiest givers that you see are the ones who realize that risk isn't the issue we don't like that Ooh, let me give how much to god that let me figure my budget real quick it's pretty risky but the best givers have realized that risk isn't the issue at all the priority of god in your life is the issue in your culture in your marriage your conduct your possessions 
you do a risk assessment of the material security of yours 70 to 90 years on earth versus the eternal God of creation, see how that pans out. God doesn't need it. But you and I need to be forced to lean on Him so that we don't lean on inferior things. The command to give means that God intends to provide. That's what it means. And in all of His commandments, whether it's the giving, the self-sacrifice, or even these impossible commands of righteousness that we fail at over and over again, we see that even for that, God has provided. Before we get to that, though, we've got one more passage here. Look at verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. When Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. When he came out, he told the people of Israel what was commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the first known instance of radiation. We've got a guy with a glowing face. Now, at first glance, I think the implications are pretty obvious. You cannot be that close to God for that long without it showing, without it showing up, and showing up to other people as well. A few things that it does here for Moses is that it establishes Moses' leadership. There is no doubt due to the way that he came out of there, there was no doubt that he'd been with God, that he'd been in the presence of something otherworldly. It is the result of the nearness of God. It changes you in a way that others will notice and others might not like. It freaked them out. They didn't, this was different. And these guys had been zapped. They'd just been zapped again. They'd been punished. They knew enough by now to be scared of the glory of God. And here comes Mr. Radiation coming out of a tent. They were unnerved by it. But no one was surprised to hear that he'd been with God. It was pretty obvious. Being in the presence of light, light that wears off on you. Well, what happened? We've got this new deal. We've got this renewal. And ever since, everything's been fine. 
you know, they learned their lesson. They went on. After that horrible experience and punishment, everybody stayed on track, right? The man with the glowing face came out, and he said what to do, and they did it, obviously. His face is glowing. They've seen God do miracles. They've seen God punish. They've seen God protect. They've seen God preserve. Now they've seen him forgive and renew. But why didn't it stay that way? The rest of the New Testament is a wreck. On again, off, of, off again, disobedience, punishment. It is literally a bloodbath. Why is that? Well, in short, the glory faded. Now, that's not to say that God literally became less, but in their hearts, in their minds, over time, God would become less to them. The religion turned into meaningless habit and tradition instead of true worship. The fire would fade, and, and their spiritual lives, their righteousness, and their integrity would go with it every time. But then what about us? How can we even have a chance if we don't have the sacrifice, the tablets, the tent, the man with the glowing face, this reminder of the glory. Now, this is really exciting when this happens. Whenever the Bible interprets the Bible, when the Bible talks about the Bible, is one of the most exciting things in, in studying the Bible or in preaching. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3. We're going to spend the rest of our time there. Paul talks about this same passage. So if we want help thinking about this and looking at this and the implications of this odd passage, we've got it. We've got it in the Bible. Don't have to go to any external materials you've got the apostle paul talking about in the bible what he says is that you have got it better you sitting here today you have it better than the people who saw god part the red sea you have it better than the people who were fed by manna who saw moses's face glow after meeting with god you've got it better than the people who heard the voice of God from the mountain give the commandment, who saw the miracles in the wilderness. You have it better, and you have more proof of God. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter there he's talking about is the law. Now he's talking to the Corinthians about do we need to prove that we're from God? I mean, you, you people, he's talking to a church in Corinth that got saved under their ministry. 
And he's asking them, do we need to prove ourselves to you again? You got saved under our preaching. Do you need our credentials? Do you, or do, you, do other people need you to write credentials for us? And he says, Christ is our sufficiency. Our su- sufficiency is of God. And it's of the Spirit. And he says in verse 7, Now, if the ministry of death, the ministry of death, we don't have one of those here. We don't have a deacon of death. We've got a deacon of, you know, of grounds and stuff like that. We don't have a deacon over the ministry of death. So this is some unusual language here. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. So now he's talking about the law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. The ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was, for what, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has gone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now that'll preach. There is a lot there. But let's look and see if we can tease out what's relevant to this passage today. Verse 7, so we've got this ministry of death. And he's talking about the law. He's talking about Moses bringing them the law. He brought them the ministry of death. The law condemns us, as they proved. They broke the law immediately. And it condemned them. 
The law condemns us. It doesn't save us. When Moses came back from talking to God, and that residual glory would be shining from him, but what he was bringing back were rules that they would break and therefore be condemned for, proving that the people truly were not worthy of the glory of their God, proving that God's law has real consequences. And them and all of the neighbors around would know it. Paul talks about this on a personal level in Romans 7. Romans 7, 9. Now listen to this. Listen to this language and just see how many question marks it throws up in your head. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now how about that for a twist of logic? The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So did that which is good then bring death to me? This good law of God, did it just show up to kill me? By no means. It was sin. It was sin that killed me. Producing death in me through what was good. So why does it work like that? In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, might not just be shown to be sin, but shown to be sinful beyond measure. So that sin could be known to be sin. So that God could be made to be known righteous by comparison. But in the proving of God being righteous, I get condemned. God gets to be shown good. Great. But guess what? Immediately, as soon as that contrast appears, I'm on the bottom end of that deal. God gets proved to be righteous. I get proved to be worthy of death. Just by seeing what God and who God is, immediately I don't add up to the glory of God. That's why the giving of the law is the ministry of death. So with that in mind, go back to 2 Corinthians 3, 7. We get a better glory. In 7 and 10, he references the fading glory. And in, and in verse 13, he suggests the veil that Moses wore was so that they couldn't watch it fade away. Here is the reason we sin. The glory of God is faded for us. Because we don't go near Him. Because we forget it. Some never saw it, never realized the glory of God never saw themselves in need of repentance by contrast and need saved. And the glory and the priority then is given to lesser things. Better they not see it, according to Moses' logic, better they not see it than to see it fade, than to see their hearts harden. But then what is it that we have that's so much better? Verse 1 through 3 he says, 
we're beginning to commend are, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some do letters of recommendation to you or from you you yourselves are a letter of our recommendation written on our hearts known to be to be known and read by all and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered to us written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone but on tablets of the human heart. Here's what we've got that's so much better. If you've come to know Christ in repentance, you have the work of the Holy Spirit in you. The stuff that made Moses' face glow when he sat before God, that is with a believer. That is in you. The Spirit of God is what calls you to life in the first place by telling you that you are dead in sin. You can hear it in a sermon. You can read it in the Bible. You can hear it from another person. But it is the Holy Spirit that makes it click, that shows it to be truth and not just preaching. It's what we call conviction, realizing I'm a sinner. That's why Paul says the law came, and according to the law, I realized I'm in trouble. I became convicted. I realized that I fall way, way short of what I was created to do, which was glorify God by displaying his name. I don't get it done. I fall way short of that. But it is the Holy Spirit that makes a person realize that. It's the conviction. It is what leads you to repentance and salvation in the first place, is that Oh my goodness, I don't add up. I am in trouble. You need to have come to that point. That is salvation. You need to have come to that point in your life where you realized, by the grace of God, that the law kills me. All this good Bible stuff, those Ten Commandments, that shows me that I deserve hell. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that does that then that's not all the work or all the glory. Moses is faced with faith. He couldn't be constant with God because of his sin and the sin of the people. He had to go to a separate place. He had to get away from all these sinful people so that God could come and, and see him. But the glory of the work of Christ never fades. By going to him, he has, taken our he has taken our death from the law and given us life. Not only that, but we then have that spirit with that glory with us all the time. And if we walk in the spirit, it will be life to us. That closeness, that going to the tent and don't leave. Stay there. He said in verse 3, you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, on tablets not of stone, but on tablets of human heart. The spirit has done all of this, plus the impossible work of changing a human heart. There is the greater proof of God right there. That is the greater proof that you possess. Not the voice on the mountain, not the preacher with the glowing face. It's the fact that you saw that you needed God, and you have seen God change you and grow you and mature you. We don't see that 
as nearly amazing enough. We come in and we sit down and we sing our songs and we go home. And we fail to be impacted by that over and over again. That, man, I'm a sorry enough sinner. That it is amazing that God would even put worship in my heart. Only God can change a sinful human. You remember what I said earlier that God's commands implies that he will provide. Well, they're breaking the commands. So apparently he didn't provide for that. But he has. He's provided for even our righteousness before him. Not just the, the giving of things. Well, he gave me enough that I can give to him. He's provided us enough safety that I can go to him. But the fulfilling of his law, he even gave you that in Christ. In Christ, Christ has fulfilled the law for us because we could not. At every step of the way, everything that God commands, all of these harsh commandments that God puts on us, he has provided every single step of the way for us. That's why we have this greater hope. And there is no veil. Look in verse 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was, of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their heart. But when one turns to the Lord, now there's that work of the Holy Spirit, causing someone to turn to the Lord. And when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The center of this whole story is nearness to God. If you miss that, then you have missed what is the void in the human heart. The void in the human heart isn't just to survive, just to have life, just to be fulfilled. Whether a person will acknowledge it or not, the void of a human heart is nearness with the Creator. It is literally what we are created to, what we are created for. The story is separation of Creator from creation and the mending of that. And you have access. If you know Christ and you have turned from sin to follow Him, you have direct access. You don't have to wait for Moses to come out with a glowing face. You have direct access all of the time. You need to use it. You have direct access by the Spirit that led you to salvation in the first place. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is talking to a father by the Spirit of God. Do you know how far it was from these people's minds to call God Father, to call him Daddy? 
That wasn't, that would have seemed so sacrilegious, so familiar. Like, we can't go near him. We can't stand to hear his voice. We can't go into the tent. And by the Spirit of God, we call him Father. A child has access that other people don't. If any of you came wandering into my bedroom at 4 o'clock in the morning the way my 4-year-old does, it would freak me out. You don't have that access. You know the feeling where like you're sound asleep, but you know there's a face. You don't know why, but there's a face. It's a little spooky, but you're like, oh my goodness, what are you doing up? Go to bed. Daddy, Mama told me to come over here. That's what happens. A child has access that I've never woke up once in the morning to Matt. Hey, Will. Hey. No. Children have access that other people don't have. Not only does a child have special access, but a child is influenced by that access. You know, you, you, see the, you hear the stories and you see the pictures of the kids playing on the floor of the Oval Office. You know, that's different. You grow up playing cars on the floor of the Oval Office. Why? Well, that's, that's Daddy. Daddy works here. This is his office. It's not that big a deal to me. Or the kid that grows up sitting in the buddy seat in a tractor. That access changes that influences that person, changes who they are, who they become. And as a child, the child close to God will be, should be influenced by that access to God. Watching, maturing, being influenced by the nearness. If you are one of, one of God's children, you have that access. You need to use it. You need to be influenced by it. So the effect of the commandment was condemnation, something to break, a standard that we couldn't live up to. The effect of the Spirit then is closeness to God, not through a priest going into an exclusive courtyard, into an exclusive tent, and past an even more exclusive veil in that tent, but face-to-face communion. This is what has been achieved. This is what's been provided at the cross. And the laws, what about those laws? They don't become sin to us. They don't become unrighteous because they provided us death. Through Christ, we have the Spirit of God influencing our hearts, influencing our thoughts, and working out into our actions through more and more obedience, more and more Christ-likeness, a closer adherence to the nature of God, which means closer obedience to the laws that God set forth. But it's not by our power, though. It's by the power of the Spirit in us. I know this about me, and I know this about you, that when I sin, I've got a lot of experience at that. I'm kind of an authority on the subject. That when I sin, and when I know it's sin, that God ceases to be real to me at that moment. 
I'm not rightly believing, perceiving the God of reality. In my human mind, I take the God that saved me from the punishment of this very sin that I'm committing, and I push him aside for a minute so that I, I can live in a reality where maybe hopefully he doesn't exist, hopefully his consequences aren't real in that reality, and I put aside the knowledge that told me that I need his work on the cross, that he's done the most amazing accomplishment in the universe for me. I push all that aside, and I give up that closeness so I can live in a false reality for just a little bit of the stuff that death is real. If you want to know what happens when you sin, that pretty much sums it up. You lay aside the glory of God so you can go do this little sin so that you can get a little taste of death. It makes no sense logically, but that is one of the clearest ways to perceive sin. Because if the glory of God is in front of your face, if the consequences of sin is in front of your face, and by consequences of sin, I mean the incredible work of the cross. If that's in front of your face, that is a deterrent to sin. So don't waste the access. Don't waste the opportunity you've been given. If you do not want to go through the consequences of losing sight of God, stay there. Stay in the rock where Moses was. And God said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Live in a place where you are face to face and under the influence of God and His Word. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for that good, that healthy fear and conviction. I pray for that the dread and the hatred of sin would come on us. I pray that there would be a perceivable war inside each of us, that we would know all of the time that I am actively at war with sin. I am actively on the side of that which glorifies God, that I uphold His name, that His Spirit is at work within me. And I pray that for those in here who, who to, to them, this is just religious babble, that this is just more religious talk, that they would come to know you, that they would come to experience this. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.